chapter twenty three part one of supplements to the second book from the world as will and idea volume three by arthur schopenhauer translated by r b haldane and j kemp this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by expatriate in bangor maine chapter twenty three on the objectification of the will in unconscious nature part one that the will which we find within us does not proceed as philosophy has hitherto assumed first from knowledge and indeed is a mere modification of it thus something secondary derived and like knowledge itself conditioned by the brain but that it is the prius of knowledge the kernel of our nature and that original force itself which forms and sustains the animal body in that it carries out both its unconscious and its conscious functions this is the first step in the fundamental knowledge of my metaphysics paradoxical as it even now seems to many that the will in itself is without knowledge yet the scholastics in some way already recognized and confessed it for julius caesar vaninus that well-known sacrifice to fanaticism and priestly fury who is thoroughly versed in their philosophy says in his amphitheatro page one eighty one voluntas potentia cica est ex scholasticorum opinione that further it is that same will which in the plant forms the bud in order to develop the leaf and the flower out of it nay that the regular form of the crystal is only the trace which its momentary effort has left behind and that in general as the true and only automaton in the proper sense of the word it lies in the foundation of all the forces of unorganized nature plays acts in all their multifarious phenomena imparts power to their laws and even in the crudest mass manifests itself as gravity this insight is the second step in that fundamental knowledge and is brought about by further reflection but it would be the grossest misunderstanding to suppose that this is a mere question of a word to denote an unknown quantity it is rather the most real of all real knowledge which is here expressed in language for it is the tracing back of that which is quite inaccessible to our immediate knowledge and therefore in its essence foreign and unknown to us which we denote by the words force of nature to that which is known to us most accurately and intimately but which is yet only accessible to us in our own being and directly and must therefore be carried over from this to other phenomena it is the insight that what is inward and original in all the changes and movements of bodies however various they may be is in its nature identical that yet we have only one opportunity of getting to know it more closely and directly and that is in the movements of our own body in consequence of this knowledge we must call it will it is the insight that that which acts and strives in nature and exhibits itself in ever more perfect phenomena when it has worked itself up so far that the light of knowledge falls directly upon it that is when it has attained to the state of self-consciousness exists as that will which is what is most intimately known to us and therefore cannot be further explained by anything else but rather affords the explanation of all other things it is accordingly the thing in itself so far as this can ever be reached by knowledge consequently it is that which must express itself in some way in everything in the world for it is the inner nature of the world and the kernel of all phenomena 
as my essay über den willen in der natur specially refers to the subject of this chapter and also adduces the evidence of unprejudiced empiricists in favour of this important point of my doctrine i have only to add now to what is said there a few supplementary remarks which are therefore strung together in a somewhat fragmentary manner first then with reference to plant life i draw attention to the remarkable first two chapters of aristotle's work upon plants what is most interesting in them as is so often the case with aristotle are the opinions of earlier profound philosophers quoted by him we see there that anaxagoras and empedocles quite rightly taught that plants have the motion of their growth by virtue of their indwelling desires epithumia nay that they also attributed to them pleasure and pain therefore sensation but plato only ascribed to them desires and that on account of their strong appetite for nutrition compare plato in the timaeus page four o three aristotle on the other hand true to his customary method glides on the surface of things confines himself to single characteristics and conceptions fixed by current expressions and asserts that without sensation there can be no desires and that plants have not sensation he is however in considerable embarrassment as his confused language shows till here also where fails the comprehension a word steps promptly in as deputy namely to threptikon the faculty of nourishing plants have this and thus a part of the so-called soul according to his favourite division into anima vegetativa sensitiva and intellectiva this however is just a scholastic quiditas and signifies plantae nutriuntur quia habent facultatum nutritivam it is therefore a bad substitute for the more profound research of his predecessors whom he is criticising we also see in the second chapter that empedocles even recognized the sexuality of plants which aristotle then also finds fault with and conceals his want of special knowledge behind general propositions such as this that plants could not have both sexes combined for if so they would be more complete than animals by quite an analogous procedure he displaces the correct astronomical system of the world of the pythagoreans and by his absurd fundamental principles which he specially explains in the books de kilo introduces the system of ptolemy whereby mankind was again deprived of an already discovered truth of the greatest importance for almost two thousand years i cannot refrain from giving here the saying of an excellent biologist of our own time who fully agrees with my teaching it is g r treveranus who in his work über die erscheinungen und gesetze des organischen lebens eighteen thirty two volume two one forty nine has said what follows a form of life is however conceivable in which the effect of the external upon the internal produces merely feelings of desire or dislike such is the life of plants in the higher forms of animal life the external is felt as something objective treveranus speaks here from pure unprejudiced comprehension of nature and is as little conscious of the metaphysical importance of his words as of the contradictio in adjecto which lies in the conception of something felt as objective a conception which indeed he works out at great length he does not know that all feeling is essentially subjective and all that is objective is on the other hand perception and therefore a product of the understanding yet this does not detract at all from the truth and importance of what he says 
in fact in the life of plants the truth that will can exist without knowledge is apparent one might say palpably recognizable for here we see a decided effort determined by wants modified in various ways and adapting itself to the difference of the circumstances yet clearly without knowledge and just because the plant is without knowledge it bears its organs of generation ostentatiously in view in perfect innocence it knows nothing about it as soon on the other hand as in the series of existences knowledge appears the organs of generation are transferred to a hidden part man however with whom this is again less the case conceals them intentionally he is ashamed of them primarily then the vital force is identical with the will but so also are all other forces of nature though this is less apparent if therefore we find the recognition of a desire that is of a will as the basis of plant life expressed at all times with more or less distinctness of conception on the other hand the reference of the forces of unorganized nature to the same foundation is rarer in proportion as their remoteness from our own nature is greater in fact the boundary between the organized and the unorganized is the most sharply drawn in the whole of nature and perhaps the only one that admits of no transgressions so that natura non facit saltus seems to suffer an exception here although certain crystallizations display an external form resembling the vegetable yet even between the smallest lichen the lowest fungus and everything unorganized there remains a fundamental and essential difference in the unorganized body that which is essential and permanent thus that upon which its identity and integrity rests is the material the matter what is unessential and changing is on the other hand the form with the organized body the case is exactly reversed for its life that is its existence as an organized being simply consists in the constant change of the material while the form remains permanent its being and its identity thus lies in the form alone therefore the continuance of the unorganized body depends upon repose and exclusion from external influences thus alone does it retain its existence and if this condition is perfect such a body lasts forever the continuance of the organized body on the contrary just depends upon continual movement and the constant reception of external influences as soon as these are wanting and the movement in it stops it is dead and thereby ceases to be organic although the trace of the organism that has been still remains for a while therefore the talk which is so much affected in our own day of the life of what is unorganized indeed of the globe itself and that it and also the planetary system is an organism is entirely inadmissible the predicate life belongs only to what is organized every organism however is throughout organized is so in all its parts and nowhere are these even in their smallest particles composed by aggregation of what is unorganized thus if the earth were an organism all mountains and rocks and the whole interior of their mass would necessarily be organized and accordingly really nothing unorganized would exist and therefore the whole conception of it would be wanting on the other hand that the manifestation of a will is as little bound up with life and organization as with knowledge and that therefore the unorganized has also a will the manifestations of which are all its fundamental qualities which cannot be further explained this is an essential point in my doctrine 
although the trace of such a thought is far seldomer found in writers who have preceded me than that of the will in plants where however it is still unconscious in the forming of the crystal we see as it were a tendency towards an attempt at life to which however it does not attain because the fluidity of which like a living thing it is composed at the moment of that movement is not enclosed in a skin as is always the case with the latter and consequently it has neither vessels in which that movement could go on nor does anything separate it from the external world therefore rigidity at once seizes that momentary movement of which only the trace remains as the crystal the thought that the will which constitutes the basis of our own nature is also the same will which shows itself even in the lowest unorganized phenomena on account of which the conformity to law of both phenomena shows a perfect analogy lies at the foundation of goethe's walverwandtschaften as the title indeed indicates although he himself was unconscious of this mechanics and astronomy specially show us how this will conducts itself so far as it appears at the lowest grade of its manifestation merely as gravity rigidity and inertia hydraulics shows us the same thing where rigidity is wanting and the fluid material is now unrestrainedly surrendered to its predominating passion gravity in this sense hydraulics may be conceived as a characteristic sketch of water for it presents to us the manifestations of will to which water is moved by gravity these always correspond exactly to the external influences for in the case of all non-individual existences there is no particular character in addition to the general one thus they can easily be referred to fixed characteristics which are called laws and which are learned by experience of water these laws accurately inform us how water will conduct itself under all different circumstances on account of its gravity the unconditioned mobility of its parts and its want of elasticity hydrostatics teaches how it is brought to rest through gravity hydrodynamics how it is set in motion and the latter has also to take account of hindrances which adhesion opposes to the will of water the two together constitute hydraulics in the same way chemistry teaches us how the will conducts itself when the inner qualities of materials obtain free play by being brought into a fluid state and there appears that wonderful attraction and repulsion separating and combining leaving go of one to seize upon another from which every precipitation originates and the whole of which is denoted by elective affinity an expression which is entirely borrowed from the conscious will but anatomy and physiology allow us to see how the will conducts itself in order to bring about the phenomenon of life and sustain it for a while finally the poet shows us how the will conducts itself under the influence of motives and reflection he exhibits it therefore for the most part in the most perfect of its manifestations in rational beings whose character is individual and whose conduct and suffering he brings before us in the drama the epic the romance etc the more correctly the more strictly according to the laws of nature his characters are there presented the greater is his fame hence shakespeare stands at the top the point of view which is here taken up corresponds at bottom to the spirit in which goethe followed and loved the natural sciences although he was not conscious of the matter in the abstract nay more this not only appears from his writings but is also known to me from his personal utterances if we consider the will where no one denies it in conscious beings 
we find everywhere as its fundamental effort the self-preservation of every being omnis natura vult esse conservatrix sui but all manifestations of this fundamental effort may constantly be traced back to a seeking or pursuit and a shunning or fleeing from according to the occasion now this also may be shown even at the lowest grades of nature that is of the objectification of the will where the bodies still act only as bodies in general thus are the subject matter of mechanics and are considered only with reference to the manifestations of impenetrability cohesion rigidity elasticity and gravity here also the seeking shows itself as gravitation and the shunning as the receiving of motion and the movableness of bodies by pressure or impact which constitutes the basis of mechanics is at bottom a manifestation of the effort after self-preservation which dwells in them also for since as bodies they are impenetrable this is the sole means of preserving their cohesion thus their continuance at any time the body which is impelled or exposed to pressure would be crushed to pieces by the impelling or pressing body if it did not withdraw itself from its power by flight in order to preserve its cohesion and when flight is impossible for it this actually happens indeed one may regard elastic bodies as the more courageous which seek to repel the enemy or at least to prevent him from pursuing further thus in the one secret which besides gravity is left by mechanics otherwise so clear in the communicability of motion we see a manifestation of the fundamental effort of the will in all its phenomena the effort after self-preservation which shows itself even at the lowest grades as that which is essential end of chapter twenty three part one recording by expatriate in bangor maine